You can see us in our exhausted state. This is real life. <laughs> when we're like, oh, my back's broken. I'm about to fall asleep. I totally recommend adoption. It's good for anybody. Just lie down. <laughs> I, I was pretty sick for a long, lot of years. We applied for adoption and they told us it would be two and a half years, at least. So one night I got up, went to the kitchen, opened my Bible, but it was as if God verbally said to me, you are having a child this summer. That summer on July 6th at 11 o'clock at night, we got a phone call and God gave us our child. Well, there was a nonstop stream of people coming just out of sheer joy to see our precious new gift. The fact that he was adopted was never yeah, that's... even in our minds. It was, he was our son. I was kind of lucky in that way. Like I've been able to see that I was a lot more fortunate than a lot of people. Like both my parents said, you can't help but see like God's role in that. Yeah, I think that we, we've been told ever since we were peanuts that we were adopted. It was never really like a, a shock. How we got uh, the kids, how they joined our family is a bit of a miracle. So it was a college friend uh, who was fostering and just really felt like that these kids were, were meant for our family. Like that's not the way that the system works. Mm -hmm. You can't recommend a friend. I think God really made it obvious so that obviously orchestrated by him so that we wouldn't believe that it had anything to do with us. So when I was eight years old, I learned that I was adopted. What that provoked for me was an interesting thing because eight-year-olds think they're the most important people in the world and I couldn't figure out why someone would give me away. And so that became a series of concerns around feeling abandoned, feeling like maybe I wasn't good enough. Our kids were in a loving Christian foster family for almost two years, which is great, but it meant that they had to, there was a big loss there as well. They're going through all kinds of stuff that they can't really vocalize other than to just act out and, and be upset and they don't know why. Like all the, we face a lot of the same challenges that parents do, any parents do with meltdowns about the littlest things, but there also comes the piece of their trauma and their loss as well. So we have to parent with that in mind as well. After Dick and I had been married for five years, we'd had a series of miscarriages and it became very clear that while we desperately wanted to have a family, having a family in kind of the traditional way wasn't going to happen. And so we decided to adopt. As someone who's adopted, this wasn't um, a tough decision for me at all. Even when you, when everybody around you is, is making you feel accepted to still have this like feeling deep inside like I don't believe you you know like, because there's just something you just I just felt different family members have said to me have I ever made you feel like you weren't part of the family because they were always so concerned about making me feel like part of the family that like to think that I was ever felt like I wasn't was just never an issue like yeah I got a good family. <laughs> to see the kids uh, really trust that our home and, and, and that, uh, that we are, are safe. You know, definitely looking back, you really see how they've grown and just become a lot more comfortable. I love hearing and seeing other people love our kids too, you know, bring them to church, 
and hearing other people brag about how, how much fun they were, uh, that, that is so rewarding. Although we've only parented them for two years, so we can't take a lot of the credit. Yeah. <laughs> I think the concept of adoption is greater than just child into family. Um, you can adopt people into the greater family you create around you. Because they were in our home, we've been able to learn from their specific circumstances and how Jared is so protective of his sister. It's, a, it's so neat to learn loyalty and love from Jared in that manner. Been able to learn from Kelsey how she was in the, in the depths of a deep depression and, and mental illness and how she never wavered from her faith. And uh, I would have never learned about mental illness. And, and, and what that, God's love, its provision through that, it's been amazing. He chose us to go through that. When I think about um, how adoption really does change us, it, it asks us to think about opening our world in a very different way so that there's a stretching that goes on and a bubble breaking that goes on that means that we're gonna do things differently. We're gonna see things differently. And being able to help people understand that adoption isn't foreign, but it is a different way to form family isn't a bad thing at all. Families are intriguing options, aren't they? options. They're intriguing realities. On the one hand, I mean, we all come from families. We all belong to families. And yet, on the other hand, I don't know if any of us has really figured out how to be family as well as we would like. On the one hand, you watch shows like uh, Modern Family or you hear stories like the stories we've heard from these adoptive families, and you realize that families can be really complicated in how they're put together, and yet underneath it, there seems like there should be this very simplified reality that's just, we're family, and, and people know what you mean by that. Uh, belonging in families feels like it comes with this tension that on the one hand, at a very simple level, I belong to you and you belong to me. We belong to each other, so everybody belongs. That's how it should be. And then you hear Corey tell the story about how hard his family, which is also my family, has worked to want for him to feel like he belongs. And also how he always somehow suspected that he didn't really belong. I don't think that reality is limited just to adoptive families, though I get the, the significance of it in adopted families. I think probably every one of us lives in a family where one person looks around at all the other members of the family and just by virtue of the way that they don't fit in at all, they just think, they wonder how, whether or how they could really belong to these people, or maybe it's even truer to say that for all of us, there are certain ways that we look around at our family members and say, I just don't understand whether or how I belong to these people because we're so different. And then that leads to that incredibly unfunny joke that we like to tell in our culture where somebody will then say, well, that's because you're adopted. By which they mean to suggest you're so different than the rest of us, you can't really belong.
you're not really one of us. And it's unfunny, um, not just because somebody's personhood should never be the punchline to a joke. It's also unfunny because of what Bert said in the video. There's just no thought to whether Corey was adopted or not. This is just our son. There's no such thing as not belonging in family, or at least in family, the way family is supposed to be. And what's interesting is that every one of these dynamics and tensions when it comes to family also seem to find their way into how we are God's family together. And in fact, that's been the driving metaphor behind this sermon series because the the question that has hung over all of these messages for the last four or five weeks has been the question of what does it take for me to actually belong to God and to God's family? Because the, the churches that Paul, the Apostle Paul is writing the letter to Galatians that we've been studying and Today, we're going to pick up in Galatians chapter 4, verse 1, if you have a, a Bible or a Bible app. This letter to the Galatian churches that Paul is writing, um, he is writing to them because they've been told by another group of people that in order to belong to God's family, you have to belong to Abraham's family, the family of Israel, by doing what Abraham did, and that is by getting circumcised and by eating kosher and by observing the Sabbath, you have to believe in Jesus and then obey these relatively arbitrary religious rules. And Paul's whole point in this letter is to say that is absolutely not true. That in order to belong to God and God's family, the only thing you need to do is receive God's loving acceptance of you as the gift of grace that it is and receive it by faith, not try to earn it or deserve it by religious rule keeping or observance and by receiving the gift of grace by faith in Christ and what Christ has done, not in you and your ability to perform religiously at a level that God will love and accept you. That when you, to be accepted by God and embraced in God's family, is something that happens by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so we pick up this passage today where the family metaphor ends up becoming central, but where it starts, Paul talks about a family dynamic that um, I don't think is very common among us, though it was quite common in the ancient world. He says in Galatians chapter 4, what I'm saying is that as long as an heir is under age, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. Paul's describing a scenario that was common in the ancient world where inheritance was such a major theme to the firstborn son. And he's talking about a household scenario where the son, who is the heir, is not old enough to inherit. And so in that situation, what a father would do is he would place that child under the care of a trusted slave whose responsibility was to care for the child, to protect the child, to educate the child, to raise the child, to guide the child through life in, in every way, prepare the child for the day decided by the father for when the child would inherit the entire estate and become the man of the house. Paul says the interesting tension of the status of that child is that even though 
they are the heir and therefore they do in effect own the entire estate. At that exact moment, they're actually equivalent to or maybe even less than the status of a slave because their entire being has been put under the supervision of this trusted slave, this guardian, this trustee. And Paul's point is, he's saying that this is the way that Jewish Christians or all Christians who have decided to follow Christ, but especially Jewish Christians who decide to follow Christ, this is the way they should think about the Jewish religious law. That the Jewish religious law that these missionaries were coming through Galatians saying you have to believe in Jesus and then obey these rules. Paul's saying, no, no, no. Those rules were a temporary guardian. They were a supervisor. They were meant to care for and protect and guide and educate and groom God's people until the time set by the father when Jesus would come. But once the child is old enough to inherit the estate, they no longer need the trustee, the guardian, the slave to look over them. Once Jesus had come, people no longer need the Jewish religious law to look over them. It was simply what God was using to keep people safe until Jesus came. Now, of course, that's how Christians think about the Jewish religious law. That's not how Jews think about the Jewish religious law and given the amount of anti-Semitism in the church, far be it from me to criticize how the Jewish people think about their own Jewish law. But from, but from what Paul is saying, he says from the perspective of someone who's given their life to Christ, that's how it appears to us. And in fact, what the point that Paul is making when he says at that moment, the child who's going to inherit everything is still kind of equivalent to a slave. The point that Paul is making is he's saying that all of us are enslaved to something. In verse three, he says this, so also when we were under age, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. That phrase, the elemental spiritual forces of the world, that's how Jews, the Jewish community, would talk about pagan Gentiles, that they worshipped the elemental spiritual forces of the world. In other words, if you were a Gentile pagan, your entire world was filled. It was infused with gods. There were gods everywhere. The, the river was a god. The rock was a god. The tree was a god. The moon is a god. The sun is a god. The emperor is a god. The empire is a god. The city of Rome is a god. There were gods everywhere. And the life of a pagan Gentile was consumed with trying to work hard enough at worshiping all of these gods and keeping all of these gods content so that these gods, which controlled the fate of humankind, would smile favorably on them and give them the life that they were always hoping for. And you live with this perpetual sense that you have to keep working and you have to keep worshiping and you have to make sure you're worshiping good enough, well enough so that the gods will give you what you hope for. And at the same time, you live with this low grade anxiety that you're somehow failing. And if you fail, the gods will be mad. And certainly we don't live in that kind of world where we worship the elemental spiritual force of the world in terms of gods that are all around us all the time that we have to worship or our life goes badly, except that we kind of are. In our world, it's not that the tree is a god and the rock is a god. It's more like money is a god and sex is a god. 
and relationships are a God and success is a God and achievement is a God and power is a God and performance is a God and on and on and on and youth is a God and you could just keep listing the things that people spend their lives working tirelessly to try and get those things working in their favor so that they can enjoy the life that they always wanted to enjoy for themselves and they live with a low-grade anxiety that it might not be working. That's at least how people in the church have often talked about people who don't follow Jesus to say they are the ones who pursue the money God and the sex God and the relationship God and on and on and on. They're enslaved to those gods. And that may be true for some. But two things are also true. Number one, I think there are lots of people inside the church who are enslaved to those very same gods where we profess to follow Jesus but spend most of our working energy pursuing money and sex and relationships and power and popularity and success and achievement and whatever the gods may be that we're hoping will make our life what we want them to be but Paul actually is hinting that there is another god that is enslaving people who would call themselves God's people when he said, so also when we were under age, we were in slavery to the elemental spiritual voice. He's talking about Jewish people. And you would have never used that language to talk about the fate and the worship of Jewish people. But what Paul is saying is, there's another kind of slavery that we can submit ourselves to, and it is slavery to religion. And you can be enslaved to religion every bit as much as you're enslaved to sin. You can be enslaved to religion in the sense that if you're counting on your religious performance to be consistent enough and high enough to earn or deserve God's loving approval. And if you live with this low-grade worry that you're probably not believing well enough and you're probably not practicing consistently enough and you're probably not behaving righteously enough, then you're actually enslaved to your religion because you are tirelessly working to try and do enough to appease God so that he will, so that God will embrace you and make your life go the way you want it to go. And Paul's implying here, the people who are enslaved to religion are just as enslaved as people who are enslaved to sin. But according to Paul, this is exactly why Jesus came. In Galatians 4, verse 4, he says, But when the fulfillment of the time came, God sent his God's son, born through a woman and born under the law. This was so God could redeem those under the law so that we could be adopted. God doesn't want us to be enslaved to anything, to sin or to religion. And so God, Paul says in Galatians, had in a double sending set us free from our enslavement. The first thing that God sent was God's son. God sent his son, it says, born 
uh, through a woman, which is an odd thing to say, especially in an ancient context where nobody could have imagined another way that a person would be born. So why does Paul say that? Paul is, Paul is telling us who he thinks Jesus is. He is sent from God. In other words, he had an existence prior to his human existence where he was, as it says in the gospel of John, with God and he was God. But he was sent by God to enter into our world through the normal chain of human events to join us as humankind in our human reality to be in solidarity with us to stand with us as one of us so that he could set us free so that he could redeem those under the law it says we talk often about how Jesus came to redeem us from slavery to sin that he forgives the sin of our past and he is transforming the sin of our present, and he is leading us into a future that is less dominated by sin and into an eternity where sin will cease to be whatsoever. He's setting us free from slavery to the corrupting powers of evil in the world, the way sin in the world has broken each one of us through, through pain and, uh, and just uh, brokenness. He's setting us he's bringing healing and hope he's setting us free free from the system systemic evils that plague our world injustice and and prejudice and and discrimination and so on economically and politically and in all sorts of ways Jesus came to set us free from that but Paul emphasizes here that Jesus came to set us free from our slavery to religion that Jesus lived and died and was raised from the dead to break us out of the need to feel like we have to keep working as hard as we can in order to earn or deserve God's loving approval and welcome into his family to set us free from the worry that we're not believing rightly enough or practicing consistently enough or behaving righteously enough and that God is ultimately going to reject us. Jesus came and lived and died and was raised so that we could be set free from all of that slavery God sent the son in verse 6 it says that God sent the spirit it says because you are God's sons God sent the spirit of God's son into our hearts the spirit who calls out Abba father um, because Jesus lived and died and was raised from the dead and conquered the forces of evil to set us free from our slavery. God sent the Holy Spirit into the world to invade our world, to invade our lives and to invade our hearts as God's continuous empowering presence and love in our lives. Jesus lived and died and was raised so that we could go from being slaves to daughters and sons. The Holy Spirit comes into our lives so that we can know in our spirits and feel and experience what it means to be 
God's daughters and sons. It says it's by the spirit that we cry out. Abba, Father. The word Abba was a a term of endearment, a term of love and intimacy that Aramaic children, which is the language Jesus spoke, that Aramaic children would use to call their fathers. It was the language that Jesus himself used to refer to the intimacy and closeness and love of his relationship with God the Father. And now by the spirit of Jesus who lives in our lives and in our hearts and in us, we too can call out to God in loving intimacy and closeness and call God Abba. It's what Paul means in Romans chapter five, verse five, when he says God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. When God gave us the Holy Spirit, what he was doing was pouring the fullness of his love into our hearts so that we could know that we know that we know how deeply and how completely we are loved by God. And so that love could spill out of our hearts back to God and for ourselves and for each other and for our world. God sent his spirit so that we could know what it is to love. But God sent his spirit Secondly, so that we could be, know what it is to be freed from slavery to religion. Jesus lived and died and was raised so that no one else had to try and ever earn God's uh, love and approval by their religiosity. And the Holy Spirit comes to set us free from all of that. In Ezekiel 36, it says this, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. This is God talking. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. God says the day is coming. Now this is hundreds of years before Jesus. The day came, the New Testament tells us in Jesus. But God says the day is coming when I'm going to put my spirit in you and that spirit is going to transform your heart. It's going to remove that hard heart that you have towards God and towards yourself and towards each other and towards the world. And it is going to tenderize it. It is going to replace it with a soft and tender heart of flesh whereby you'll be able to love God and love yourself and love each other and love the world. And when that spirit enters into you, it will move you to follow my decrees and obey my laws. The spirit will be the motivation and the power for you to live the kind of Christ-like life that God has invited us into um, without the need of religious rule keeping in order to enforce it. To say it a different way, the spirit entering in us means that we are able to live the Christ-like life in a way that rules can never reproduce from the inside out rather than trying to force it with rules from the outside in. So this is the family scenario Paul is talking about. A child who owns the whole estate, but who at present is no better than a slave. And using the metaphor, he says, because we are enslaved to sin or religion or both. But God sent God's son and God sent the Holy Spirit to set us free from slavery to sin and even from slavery to religion. Why? 
Listen to the sentence that I read before. Verse four and five. God sent his son so that we could be adopted as God's daughters and children. God sent his son so that we could be adopted. That word is a legal term in the Roman Empire that was used of a man who was a wealthy landowner and who did not have a male heir to inherit his estate. And so he would actually adopt one of his slaves and make that slave the heir, effectively saying to the slave, you're no longer a slave. You're now my son. And because you're my son, everything that I have is yours. Now, I have not experienced firsthand the realities of adoption, either as an adopter or as an adoptee. I've watched it play out in my family, its challenges and its deep, deep joys. I've watched it among friends and families at Southridge. We've heard the stories today of this beautiful gift that adoption is. These, these children who otherwise had nobody and no chance now being welcomed into families and being loved by these parents who had so much love bursting out of their heart and no one to give it to, who've now been given this gift of a child that is theirs, that they just wrap in the embrace of this all-consuming love. The Bible in Psalm 68 says that one thing God delights to do is to put those who are all alone into families. What the Apostle Paul says in this passage is that that is precisely the way we are to think about God's relationship with us. That here's God, this heavenly parent, heart bursting with a love that is overflowing, that God just longs to pour out on anyone who would receive it, who, who actually envelops us in this embrace of love and inclusion and whose heart is bursting with joy and delight as a result. This God who looks at us and says, because of Jesus and because of the spirit, you're no longer slaves. Now you are my daughters and my sons. And literally everything that I have to give belongs to you. And here we are as those who were living as slaves without a hope in the world suddenly discovering that through nothing that we have done for ourselves, we are now loved and embraced and we belong to God and we belong to this family and we get to just live in it and love it. And he, Paul says, he kind of drills into what this means in verse seven. He says, so he says, you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you're his child, God has also made you an heir. 
Paul says this means two things. Number one, you're not a slave, you're a child. You don't have to work for your dinner. You don't have to try to impress God enough to make sure that he will continue to love you. You just belong in the same way that every child has ever belonged to every family that was functioning the way families were supposed to function. You just belong. I think too many of us still Though we would say, yeah, I know that I'm God's child. We still live with the mentality of a slave. We have this long religious to-do list. And if we don't execute everything on it, we feel guilty and scared that God is going to reject us. We believe that if we can't believe rightly enough or practice consistently enough or behave righteously enough, that somehow God is going to decide that he doesn't want anything to do with us anymore and it's because I think of the way that we have experienced imperfect parenting relationships in our own contexts and see them I've heard stories of adoptive parents who after a very short period of time sent the kids back saying these aren't the kinds of kids we were hoping for And so we live with this mentality that if we somehow don't perform at a high enough level, get it right enough in everything we do, that God is going to do that to us. And let me tell you that that is absolutely false. You are not a slave. You don't have to work for God's love and approval. You don't have to jump through any hoops to be a part and to belong in God's family. It's just the gift that God has given you. And the only thing you have to do is open your arms in faith and say, thank you, God. I receive it. I believe you when you say that you love me and that I belong and that nothing can ever change that. The second thing it means It says, since you're his child, God has also made you an heir. God says, since you're my kid, everything I have to give belongs to you. Everything. Forgiveness. Freedom from guilt and shame. It's yours. Hope and healing. It's yours. Life until it overflows. It's yours. Love until your heart bursts. It's yours. Just Literally, you belong to God just like any other kid has belonged to every other family that's worked the way families are supposed to work. And it means that God is not withholding any good thing from you. The Bible says every good and perfect gift we've ever received has come from our Father who's in heaven. So let's just rest in the reality that God loves us and accepts us and embraces us, that we belong to God and we belong to God's family and we belong to each other. And there's not a single thing we have to do to earn or deserve it, except to open ourselves up and to receive it in faith. I pray that you can hear that from God today. Let's pray. God, it is so hard to imagine what it feels like to be 
purely and perfectly loved. Because none of us have ever known what that's like except from you. And sometimes that's even hard to discern or to feel. I pray, God, that in these next moments, you would give us the faith to open our hearts and to hear your voice speaking the truth to us that we are loved, that we are yours, and that nothing is ever going to change that reality. In, because of Jesus and for Jesus' sake and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.